For many cultural organisations, it's never been more important to generate independent, unrestricted earned income from commercial activities. But is there a danger that commercial activities are still seen as a distraction? Some might say that beautiful, meaningful or moving artworks and buildings were not created to be printed on the side of a mug or a keyring, that the whole idea of public galleries and private hire events should never mix, and the only place for a cafe or restaurant is in the furthest, darkest corner of a building, somewhere beyond even the stationary cupboard. Fortunately, these days attitudes have changed, but by how much? I'm Ted, and on this episode of the Cultural Enterprises podcast, we ask whether trading as part of the wider organisation is always the bridesmaid and never the bride. It was at this point we were going to play a clip of Beyonce's Single Ladies, but we couldn't afford it. So here's that pianist again. In a slight departure from our usual format, this episode sees the Association for Cultural Enterprises Director of Digital and Communications, Robin Cantrell Fennick, conduct not one, but two interviews. He just loves talking to people. I do a lot of benchmarking across the sector, and that really helps me reinforce at board level what we're doing. More from that interview later, but for now, we are delighted to welcome Louise Emerson to the podcast. Louise is a business consultant and coach, now director of consultancy firm Take the Current, and former CEO of Cheltenham Festivals and head of commercial strategy at the Natural History Museum in London. Commissioned by the Association for Cultural Enterprises, Louise has just published a thought leadership paper on how the culture of an organisation can help or hurt your ability to create that vital commercial income to support your cultural activities. Louise joined Robin down the line to discuss her findings. So Louise, thanks for joining me today. I'd like to start by asking you how you think cultural enterprises and that whole world of trading um, are seen in wider cultural organisations. I think the best cultural organisations are those where the commercial activities are fully integrated. It's not just about making a profit, it's about the values of the organisation, it's about the brand of the organisation as well as the financial stability. And that's right at one end of the continuum. At the other end, of course, it, commercial is completely separate and perhaps sitting in a little silo on its own. And then in the middle of that, you've got various different things. You can have commercial activities that are slightly fragmented, that maybe aren't as joined up as they might be, and so not making the most of uh, what they could. And then you have most of the organisations that I talk to, which are operating really, really well, getting great results, and where they could make the difference, where they could make that extra bit of income, is making sure that they are working right across borders and that they are fully integrated. So you've written a fantastic thought leadership paper for us, which people can find on our website at culturalenterprises.org.uk, which is all about how the culture of uh, an organisation can support cultural enterprises and being entrepreneurial. What came through strongly for you in writing that paper? It was really interesting actually talking to some of the organisations I did. I think one of the main things that came through was that the commercial vision for the organisation has to be held right at the top for you to get the best results. I think also talking to some organisations where they've either, they're either their ex-local authority or they're still part of their local authority is a real change in thinking. One person put it as uh, not managing budgets but generating income. Another thing that came out was that all staff had to have an understanding of the 
of the importance of commercial income and generating commercial income. And that really brought results for a lot of organizations. And lastly, I think one thing that is really interesting is that those that are doing it best are not just running commercial organizations like the catering and the retail and the events and so on, but they're actually really delving into the brand and the values of the organization and bringing that out through their commercial activities as well. Thank you very much. And in the paper, you describe the concept of an open culture. Why is that so desirable and powerful? I think really what lies underneath having an open culture is that if you've got an open culture, you're an organization that learns. And in doing that, in being able to learn, you're able to question yourself. So you discover more possibilities, more opportunities. You've got a bit more of an attitude of what if we did it this way or we did it that way, or let's question our assumptions. Let's not always just be completely certain about what we're doing, but leave room to question things. And in order to do that, you've got to have that sort of open culture. And what are the elements of an open culture? What does that look like? I think really it's about people being able to, like I just said, it was a thinking through their assumptions and being able to uh, delve into them and look for the gaps, look for uh, what might be limiting, just be a little heightened sense of an awareness, I guess, and understanding what more data they may need to prove what they're, the route that they're taking. Um, taking more views in as well, not just having one view, the, the role of the director not being the person who comes up with a solution, but more the one that enables everyone to contribute. And if you're currently working in an organisation where you think, you know, we need an open culture, we need to be working towards that, but we're not there right now, what would be the first step that any organisation could take towards developing that culture? Yeah, I think it does have to be quite explicit, actually, because you can't be open on your own. <laughs> so openness really is about relationships. And so it's probably looking at things when you're discussing things, you're discussing them in a very different way. You're allowing challenge. I think that's the main thing. And you're and you're being very you're <laughs> being very upfront about that. You're saying that we are going to reflect on this, and we're, it's not about whether you're right or wrong. It's more about getting the right result for the organisation. So that's a starting point about being able, being allowed, if you like, being given the space to question things. Well, I've got to say, I've read the paper and it's fascinating the conversations that you've had with directors across the sector. And just talking to you now, you've described holding the commercial vision right at the top of the organisation, not managing budgets, but generating income, engaging all of the staff in commercial, talking to everybody, allowing challenge, asking what if, leaving room to question what you're doing and being less certain sometimes and, and looking at what data do you have and what data do you need. All of those things have come through really strongly in the paper and, and I'd really encourage everybody to download it and, and have a look. Is there anything else, Louise, that you would like to say before we wrap up this conversation? 
Yeah, I think there's just one thing. I mentioned earlier the, the borders between functions, and I think sometimes that's where uh, things can be less open. So the borders between commercial and, say, exhibitions or productions, between commercial and sponsorship or commercial in ad and admissions or membership, being able to work across those borders and have those open conversations about how you use assets to get the best result for the organisation is where you can get that extra bit of value. Cultural enterprises without borders. What a great place to finish our conversation. Louise Emerson, thank you so much for your report and for taking part in this conversation today. Thank you. Louise's report, From Not-for-Profit to More Than Profit, is available in full as a long-read blog post on the Cultural Enterprises Academy website, which you can find at culturalenterprises.academy, where you will also find a host of other resources. The second interview of this episode took place at the Association for Cultural Enterprises conference earlier this year. I'll let the participants introduce themselves, although it's worth noting that both interviewees have since left their roles for Pastures New. That's the fast-paced world of the cultural enterprises sector. Hello, I'm Deborah Hunter. I'm the Commercial Development Manager for Leicester Arts and Museums, and that's part of Leicester City Council. I'm Lysia Lobo, Commercial Director at the Eshmolean, which is part of the Gardens, Libraries and Museums of Oxford University. So we're going to talk today about whether commercial enterprises are always the bridesmaid in an organisation. We've heard from the Chief Executive of Arts Council England today that across their portfolio, earned incomes increased by 25% year on year. So organisations are trading better, they're doing more, and yet somehow there can still be a sense that uh, commercial is the, 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 the poor cousin to uh, the, the core mission of an organisation. First of all, is it a picture that you recognise in your own organisations? Yes, I, I think it is very much, certainly working for a local authority where commerce, let alone the the arts and culture are necessarily the, the primary function. You know, the council is, is mainly geared towards, you know, bin collection and, and child protection. And actually we are very much the the pink and fluffy end of what what they do. I mean, we're lucky that our city mayor does understand the importance of culture, but even so, you, you are working um, within an area where if old people's homes are going to close, then your ability to do certain things just isn't going to happen because you're an easy budget to cut in the scheme of things. What I have noticed, though, in the last five to six years, there is real change. Um, and commercial is really bubbling up now and the importance of the profits it might give back to an institution, what you can do with that um, at the Ashmolean. We've doubled the profit in three years. We can do so much more with that money. Um, so I think people are sitting up and getting recognised and I think the likes of Laura Wright, who, who worked her way up in Tate in a commercial sector and is now a CEO of a, of a museum, I think it, it, it's doing a lot for the sector. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's right. I mean, certainly um, when, when I started sometime back last century there was still this idea that oh well if you must do commerce you can do it in that cupboard and Mm. anything purchased must be you know leave the premises in a brown paper bag and it's certainly come on from that in one way I think it's perhaps gone too far the other way in that there are unrealistic expectations of what you can achieve 
especially given the budget limitations that you that you have to play with. There are obviously limits on how much can be invested, how much they can pay for staffing, and you know a number of other hurdles, shall we say, that have to be overcome in order to achieve that. So um, if I could put you on the spot then and, and ask you for uh, some top tips to raise the profile of trading and commercial in an organisation, how do you go about it? I think you definitely need to be able to articulate what you do and the value you can add to an organisation and it's quite important to be quite concise with that. Um, Back it up with facts, data, experiences. I do a lot of benchmarking across the sector and that really helps me reinforce at board level what we're doing. I think also don't be afraid to be brave and bold um, in suggestions. We've seen some great presentations today at the ACE conference around people elevating experiences, doing things that drive footfall purely into commercial outlets, whether it's retail or cafes. And I think in order to leverage things further, essentially we're building brands um, in our commercial areas, you have to be bold and brave. I think that would be my my key, key tip. The other thing is around what commercial can offer. You've got everything from licensing to retail to cafe to publications, membership. I don't know many organisations that can offer such diversity in skill sets within one team. You've got creativity, you've got data, events, people, food and drink, a lot of, you know, fun and laughter and and something that's quite enjoyable and rewarding. And I think we don't do enough in the sector really around kind of sharing that. And again, it's going upwards to that board level. What a development opportunity there is just within one team. And Deborah, I get a university is a large organisation, but you're part of a huge organisation in a, in a in a local authority, as you've already touched on. So, how about you? Top tips? Yes, in, indeed. I mean, we obviously have the, you know more levels of restrictions on that, but I, I think you, you do have to, even on a quite sort of basic level, be a little bit of a political animal, and and understand who wants to achieve what, and what may or may not work. And you know, you, you're going through election cycles every year as well and it still sometimes does come down to personalities but aside aside from that I think that makes you question well why are you doing it and you know you have to come up with a very robust answer about why why you want to do it and why it will be efficacious and as, as you as you're saying Lizzie I think sometimes you just go into things without giving the proper analysis and I am a great believer in doing your market research as well and your benchmarking so that you know exactly where where you stand on that. Also aligning with the organisation's objectives, I think this is again one of the, the most important things as well, you know whether that's lifelong learning, engaging young people, promoting health, working with local businesses. I mean one real benefit of working with the council is there are lots of networks you can, you can engage with the business community relatively easily and you know there's ways to share costs and knowledge to, to help champion a particular project and you know sometimes they want to organ uh, they want to partner with local organizations as well and that helps us as well because sometimes we don't have the resources to deliver and Lisa, are, are there misconceptions about the work that you do as you know when the wider organization are looking in at the works of your teams do people have a clear picture of what you do and how you're contributing definitely i think my my famous saying is you know playing shop isn't easy you know trading requires skill tenacity the ability to pick yourself up and make mistakes and you know as someone who's worked in both the high street and the cultural sector it's 
really important people just can't attempt trading you need experts you wouldn't you wouldn't just take anybody on as a curator it requires skill and um, training and expertise it's the same for trading and I think for me that's the biggest misconception both internally and externally Um, I think people sometimes also us underestimate the ability of trading teams as well and what they're able to do you know I talked about earlier in the diversity of the teams in terms of what you can do from creativity to data but you know a retail buyer will be very different to a catering manager but essentially those trading colleagues need to be aligned to the same goals you know it's target driven the bottom line isn't everything you do need that aspect of you know whether it's people management or building a brand or thinking of just new new revenue streams or new ideas that you can implement and that all requires skill yes i, th- I think an- another one is sort of you know recognizing that we are a part of the local leisure spend mm-hmm. um you know we're not comparing ourselves to the local community hall um, you know, our, our competitors are hotels, cafes, adventure centres, function rooms, cinemas and theatres, sports grounds, shops as well. And, you know, we, we have to provide an offer, we have to deliver that is of an equal standard as they are doing. And what's your biggest success story when it comes to promoting trading in your organisation? Well, actually, one of one of my best stories was actually just after I I'd arrived at the council, and it was announced that the the body that they'd found under the car park was indeed Richard the Third, and we had a very <laughs> short time to set up a visitor centre and you know, build the shop and stock the shop as well. So yes, I spent quite a lot of the first six months doing that. We managed to create a range of merchandise for all ages, price points, areas of interest, looking at both you know, off, off the shelf, especially some local products, um, you know, companies who were devising their own often humorous products. <laughs> also looking at bespoke, uh, we ran a competition and ended up commissioning two local artists as well to deliver two quite different designs that we could then use on on products also you know the product development using the logos and brandings which changed a few times between (laughs) the first effort and the last one we also um, developed a specialist pitkin book um, which relied on telling the story of richard the third and and his connection with leicester and once that was all done, we handed it over to the trust that, that ra- then ran it. But it, it was a good way to initially sort of come up with the fact that we can do this from, you know, a standing start as well. And I, I think we earned a lot of kudos as a result within the wider organisation because it was such a high-profile project and we did it and it was successful. Fantastic. And, and, and Lissy, have you ever found a long-lost monarch under any of your, your car parks? And if not, how have you promoted the role of trading in your organisation? <laughs> not quite. I think the biggest success for us at the Ashmolean has been pulling together um, a diverse team of people with all different backgrounds and skill sets to essentially double the commercial profit um, over the last three years. And really underpinning that has been introducing new revenue streams, embedding current revenue streams, not touching ones that haven't been broken, and really getting the team to work at pace to drive things forward. A lot of that is so that we can demonstrate that, you know, trading is no longer the bridesmaid. You know, it's very much core part of the museum. And, you know, we introduced our first gin and we we collaborated with the first ever Oxford distillery for us. First public museum, first Oxford distillery, lots to talk about. It hit hit the Oxford Mail. So 
you know, you can, you can do something creatively, but essentially the numbers have been there to back it up. And I think for us, being able to have that balance between the both has been very successful for us and I'm incredibly proud of what people can do when they, they come together. And Lissy, looking forward now, what do you think the new trends will be in the next few years? I think what we've definitely seen um, emerging, which I just think will leverage and echo further, is around ethical sourcing. We're, as a university, looking at fair trade status. We already have it in some parts of the university. We're looking at it as a museum and working with the other gardens, libraries and other museums to look at fair trade across all of those sites. But I think it's around cultural sector having more ownership on what they buy. Where are you buying it from? And how can you justify where you're buying it from? And I think you can't always have the cheapest item on the shelf. You have to generate profit. But I think things are becoming around story now. So where where are you sourcing something? What's the story behind it? And I think we're going to see more and more of that um, coming through, especially as people migrate from the high street into our cultural sectors and and sites and purchase more and, and more considered purchases around that. Yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely vital and, and, and very true. I think people are becoming more reflective on, on what they're buying and why they're buying it. Thank you. And so mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think everyone around this table would mm-hmm. agree that cultural enterprises if, is not the bridesmaid. It certainly doesn't deserve to be the bridesmaid. It's a, a, a vibrant and growing sector. So tell me, Lysia, what do you love most about working in cultural enterprises? I think the people, fundamentally everything we do comes back to the people and being able to provide people to develop personally throughout their career and in their role and provide them with the stepping stones to be able to do so. We see a lot of people within this industry cross over, move to different sites and add value into those sites and bring something different each time. And I think we're a very well networked industry and I think for me that's the most exciting thing about the job. I, I totally agree. You know, people, that's that's definitely the main thing. We, You know, we have some fantastic people and, you know, things that you think, oh, I'm not sure if this is going to succeed. It does succeed because you have that wonderful can-do attitude. And, you know, I think, again, some of the things that I like, I love the variety. You know, you do come in and you don't know what on earth is going to be hitting you. You know, you come in, you've got your list of to-do stuff, but it's still there at the end of the week and you can just get all sorts of things coming in from wherever and you know that's that is fantastic and yes there are those challenges and overcoming those challenges it's it's not only professional but you know personal as well when you think you know oh I actually managed to sort that out this week it you know it 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 still happens and you know often relying on your colleagues in order to do that and again people within the wider cultural enterprise sector as well knowing you can pick them up and you know pick up the phone and sort of say help that really helps and again coming to events like this where it just sort of in, in, endorses what you've been thinking whether it's a positive or a negative thing but yeah I think we're on the right track and we're definitely getting there. <laughs> Thank you both very much. Thank you to both Deborah Hunter and Lysia Lobo. As mentioned earlier, Deborah is now freelancing in the world of cultural enterprises and Lysia is now Commercial Director of English Heritage. We wish them both well in their new roles. So that's that for this episode. Thank you for listening. Do you agree with what I guess said about trading as part of the wider organisation or have your experiences led you to a wholly different conclusion? Let us know at info at culturalenterprises.org.uk. Don't forget to like and share. The Cultural Enterprises podcast is available through all major podcast providers. See you next time.